Scuderia F1, the podcast that's always up to speed with the latest Formula One news. Follow us on Twitter at Scuderia F1 Pod and subscribe to the show on iTunes and Stitcher. Now, here are your hosts, Mark Daly and Kevin Laramang. Good day, good morning, welcome to Scuderia F1, the podcast that is always up to speed with Formula One. It's qualifying day in España, in Barcelona. Como esta, Mark? Yeah, uh, I'd like to say I'm doing good, Kevin, but I'm just getting over the flu here. So <laughs> I'm, 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 I'm attempting to struggle through this one. But hey, it is a, a race weekend. Barcelona is one of my favorite tracks because it's one of the tracks that I've actually been to. And like you say, it's qualifying morning. So it's about to get serious in just a couple of hours. Yeah, we'll see if uh, anyone can put a stop to the Mercedes domination this year. Quite dominant. It's quite impressive this year so far. Four races, four, one, two. And that's something we were not expecting at the beginning of the season. And then it just, every Grand Prix, it just keeps happening. Uh, Front row grid lock. And then... Mm -hmm goes into the race and won two and won two and won two. At some point, they were challenged. And let's not forget, Charles Leclerc should have won in Bahrain. But uh, mixed with bad luck, mixed with bad decisions here and there across the grid, the Mercedes crew finishes one and two. Will it be a song sung once again later today or tomorrow, Mark? Well, it's interesting, Kevin. If you look at the history of the uh, the Spanish Grand Prix, Ferrari has the most uh, wins with 12. The most recent was uh, in 2013 when Fernando Alonso was still a Ferrari driver. And since then, I mean, talk about Mercedes dominance. It has been all Mercedes. I mean, Lewis Hamilton has won it three times, including the last two years. Uh, Rosberg won it in 2015 and Lewis won it in, uh, in 2014. And the only driver to stand out in that little group there is Max Verstappen, who won his very first Grand Prix of his career back in 2016. And it doesn't seem like three years ago since Max wow. actually got that, that that first win. I mean, how time flies, eh? <laughs> three years ago. Yeah, it's true. I remember doing the show when we talked about it when he won his first race. That's uh, crazy. Uh, but uh, the Spanish Grand Prix... Being a bit the beginning of the European season, you would say, the, mm-hmm. this part of the European season, until it comes to Montreal uh, next month, and eventually, well, the Monaco. So you have España uh, and then Monaco coming. So it is a bit of the European season, which means upgrades. Yay! Just like Oprah, upgrades for you and upgrades for you, <laughs> upgrades for you, Ferrari, upgrades for you, Renault, upgrades for you. But let's start with Ferrari. Can that upgrade be enough to bridge that gap that seems to be there between the two? Oh, boy. Great question, Kevin. I mean, they they do have an engine upgrade and a a number of other things that they are introducing for this weekend, as are a number of uh, teams. But uh, they're calling it... uh, it's a legacy of uh, deciding to shortcut their development program after the very first race. So... After what started to, to be a very promising winter championship, if that's what you want to call testing, when everybody was saying, oh, they're at least two seconds a lap quicker than everybody else, and that has turned out to be completely, 
excuse me, uh, completely the opposite. And uh, now they're they're playing catch up, and it it seems as though looking at the the, the problems that they they have and the performance that they've had, they've um, just haven't been able to get it done, and that's the that's the thing that really worries me. And uh, Mattia Bonato, the team principal for I said. Obviously, when you're planning such a change on your schedule, you need to do it a few weeks ago. It is not something we decided within that week. So, they, um, they they've uh, brought forward their first aerodynamic uh, grade of the upgrade of the season at Azerbaijan a couple of weeks ago. They brought more uh, new parts and the engine to Spain this week, and an updated engine that was that was going to be introduced in Canada in uh, two races time. So. You're moving. <clears throat> it's going to be yeah. a difficult show, considering I'm still sick. But uh, no anyways. problem. I'm always here to take over, Mark. <laughs> Whenever yeah, please you ask need. you to drink water here, anyways. <laughs> exactly. So while Mark do so, we've talked about Ferrari's upgrade, and uh, like Mark mentioned, and because of decisions taken after the Australian Grand Prix. So when you first start racing with a car, you see what works, you see what doesn't. And then after that race is done, you already had a plan development for your car to this to be ready in that time frame, that time frame. But then things change after the first race because you realize, oh, maybe we don't want to go in that direction. Maybe this thing that we saw in the other car is the way we want to go. So this is like the, the first big upgrade of the season, but not the one that will shape what the performance of the Ferrari will be down the road. I think the next upgrade will give us a better idea of the new direction of this car for Ferrari, where they think they can make this car better down the next few months. Well, I mean, it really is going to come down to the next couple of races because if things continue, like you say, they were just off at the top of the show here, Kevin, as it has been all Mercedes. Of course, they did get a, a little bit fortunate with the the shenanigans that um, befell Ferrari in Bahrain when that should have been a Ferrari 1-2. And, uh, of course, uh, we don't need to go back into that one again, but they, they did benefit a little bit from there. But, honestly, when they've all been on the track together, that was the only race where Ferrari was much stronger for them. They were kept at arm's length in Australia in China, in Azerbaijan, and uh, unless we, we see some real magic come out here in uh, Barcelona this weekend, it, it's really difficult to, to predict. Just also, can, just going back to what we were also just talking about, about Mercedes' record in Barcelona over the past four or five seasons, and already, you know, Sebastian Vettel was saying after the practice that, you know, it's <laughs> the, the the practice deficit that they have is a fair picture of where they are still. So, you know, I, I'm hopeful that they can turn it around and 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 challenge Mercedes, but I'm I'm not seeing it yet. And no. if it continues too much, at some point, it's going to be it's going to be a bridge too far, and and Mercedes will be just too far ahead to 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 really catch up over the rest of the season. I think the conversation very quickly is about to shift to not. Who's going to challenge Mercedes, but is going to shift to whom of Valtteri Bottas or Lewis Hamilton will win the championship? Because I think that conversation is going to happen very quickly, but it's almost a foregone conclusion, foregone conclusion that a car mostly painted with silver and chrome and a touch of green will win the championship. 
Yeah, absolutely. And um, and it's been quite promising over the past couple of seasons, you know, 2017, 2018, that Ferrari really seemed to become a, a legitimate threat and looked like they were going to be a real title uh, contender. But now it seems like we've regressed a couple of years to the sort of the Hamilton-Rosberg era of Mercedes when, like you say, it wasn't like who's going to win the championship this year, but which Mercedes driver is going to win the championship this year. And I think that that's a good uh, segue into uh, what, uh, excuse me, Lewis Hamilton was saying was that Bottas' respect will prevent um, a fallout like he had with uh, Nico Rosberg. And I, I mean, the, the the incidents and the, 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 the issues that those two guys had, I, I mean, they're too numerous to to go over in, yeah, yeah, in this yeah, podcast the, again i mean but course, but one of them was of course was it in 2016 when they they crashed on the first lap and with both of those guys out i wouldn't say it handed max verstappen uh that that race win but i mean certainly without did. the mercedes cars i mean it's <laughs> odds in his favor that hey i you know I, i've got a car that's as good as everybody else and we don't have to worry about mercedes so i, I fancy my chances to win but you know, now, uh, uh, like I was going to say, I mean, now that uh, it seems to be just a, a two-horse race, I, I wonder how nice Lewis Hamilton's going to be. I, I don't think I could see a really toxic relationship fo- forming between Valtteri Bottas and Lewis Hamilton like it did oh, no. with the, he had with the, with the Nico Rosberg. But I don't think Lewis is going to be as... Uh, as as a nice of a guy, I mean, he said, to, I think that was almost the words that he used after Azerbaijan was that he was too nice to, to Valtteri Bottas at the, at yeah. the start. And uh, I think Lewis will be a little bit more ruthless. I think he'll look out for number one from, from here <laughs> out. He wants uh, that sixth world championship. That's that that's a fact. Well, we know uh, that Lewis Hamilton is known to know exactly what he needs to do to be the best that he can be. And if it down the road, it is to maybe... Uh, give the cold shoulder a bit to his teammate, well, so be it. But I think you're right. I think the relationship is going to be a bit more respectful because I don't see them crashing into each other the way we've seen with Rosberg, just because the difference of character, uh, the maturity now as well of Lewis Hamilton now from then, and the difference of driver that Nico Rosberg was and the level of maturity of the Nico Rosberg at that moment in 2016 versus the maturity of Valtteri Bottas in 2019. Uh, I think there's a big difference there. And the type of driver, too, uh, Valtteri Bottas is known to be a very clean driver. Not that he's necessarily known as that, but we've never seen anything but that since his, his time with Williams. Never was he ever called a dirty driver or a rocket or just a bowling ball or anything, right? He's always been very respected as a driver. And I think that goes into the equation of the relationship between Bottas and Hamilton on the track. I don't think there will be any troubles because both of them knows uh, that not necessarily not necessary to overtake each other. And wh- whoever wins the poll gets the little 60-40 uh, benefits on the race day, right? I think they all start 50-50 before the beginning of each weekend. Whoever wins the poll on Saturday gets the little strategy mm-hmm. better, like the, the 10% strategy boost or pinning the first or whichever is best for the strategy in every Sunday. But I think that will be the big difference is uh, basically who wins today wins tomorrow. 
Yeah, for sure. And another thing that's a big difference between uh, Valtteri Bottas and Nico Rosberg, and like you say, I mean, Bottas has never been one of these guys to get in situations or accidents and and uh, and dirty situations, right? I mean, and there was no doubt that Lewis Hamilton and Nico Rosberg head-to-head. I mean, there, there's no question that, obviously, Lewis was the better of the two drivers. However, on his day, Nico proved that occasionally he could win a race and beat Lewis fair, to, fair and square on the track. However, we did see a lot of uh, moments over the years that when he was being pushed and it was obvious that it was just a matter of time that that, that Lewis was going to take that position, take that first place away from him, that, that Nico would, he would stray into the gray area or sometimes just flat out close the door. I mean, I'm thinking about Austria for one. Um, Spain, definitely, that was... That that accident in 2016, I think that was more Rosberg than anything else. I mean, Lewis was pushing, but I mean, he pushed him onto the grass, and then, I mean, the rest is really history. But I mean, certainly, I I, I couldn't see that happening with uh, with with Valtteri Bottas. And honestly, I would like to see. I mean, if it does come down to a, a two horse race between uh, Bottas and Hamilton for the rest of the year. I would like to see some fair, clean racing between the two and and just see where it goes. I mean, I, I'm i really impressed with what I've seen from Valtteri Bottas this year because Total Wolf said over the winter that he had to perform as good as or better than Lewis Hamilton to keep his drive at Mercedes after 2020, or sorry, 2019. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, talk about raising the bar, right? I mean, that's huge. It, it's an hyperbole, of course, but what yeah. he means it's, is yeah. if, you, if you're not... In the mind of Total Wolf, example, if you don't think both your drivers are equal, if you think there's a one and there's a two, the number two will always be in doubt if there's a young prospect pushing. I think that's a bit the mentality he's trying to explain. Not that his job would be already like in question, but every year it'll be like, well, we have this young driver pushing, we give him the shot. And if you have a driver number one, driver number two, guess who's going to be let go? It's not driver number one. It's driver number two. But if in your mind you can think that both your drivers can win and both are 1A and 1B, then it's not a foregone conclusion that your young kid will actually get a seat because you think both drivers can get full potential out of the car. And I think that's what the top teams want is not two drivers. It's just two person drivers of course that can get the best out of the car each day each time they get out of the paddock absolutely we'll talk about this in a little bit more after we take our first break here on the overtime podcast network you're listening to scuderia f1 podcast we'll be right back after this short break passion drive and patience the formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride or die alive eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. Superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home huge wins. 
Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. All right, and we're back. Uh, Kevin, you made a really good point there just before the break uh, about two drivers really extracting the full potential of the car. And I I think you've really nailed on the head what uh, Mercedes has been about, especially over the course of the last four or five years, especially in this turbo hybrid uh, era of Formula One. And it's just about getting the most points, getting those wins, getting all the podiums, maximizing your points haul each and every race, because it's not just about winning drivers championships, it's winning constructors championships. And they've been absolutely dominant about it. But just talking about another guy that, uh, you know, young guys uh, and, and extracting the full potential out of the car. I'm really interested to see how Charles Leclerc is going to rebound this week after what was a very frustrating qualifying for him in Baku a couple of weeks ago, obviously stuffing it into the Armco barrier in, in qualifying in Q2, you know, starting a little bit further back in the, 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 the starting order, getting a little bit of a benefit, what with uh, penalties and, and, and things like that uh, for cars around him, guys starting from the pit lane and all that. But he had a very good race because, I mean, was his second stint, obviously, when he switched from the mediums onto the soft tires, it didn't work as well for him on those softer compound tires. But again, when he had the, the, the right tires on his car at the right time, he proved how fast he was, how good he was going. And it was a shame that uh, that his second set of tires didn't uh, lead up. But I mean, I, again, I mean, I, I think that Charles has really answered a lot of questions for me. Over the, the the opening several races of the year, obviously he hasn't won a race yet, but I mean he's come very very close. And well, you know he's, he's made some mistakes, but sorry, go ahead. I was going to say Vettel didn't win a race either, and I think yeah. that's the measuring stick. It's not yes. like if Vettel won four races and Leclerc finished tenth all four races. It's the exact opposite. Both have looked equal in my mind so far. Mm-hmm. I, you know, honestly, I, I'm going to go a little uh, one step uh, further than that. I would actually uh, suggest you that uh, better, Charles yeah. uh, has uh, has the edge over Vettel because, I mean, he's fallen foul of uh, some bad uh, race strategy, like we saw in China. He uh, came on the wrong side of uh, team orders I- in Australia, and uh, well, I mean, it worked out a little bit in his favor, obviously in uh, in Bahrain, even though he had that uh, mechanical issue with the, with his engine, but. Vettel, of course, dropped back in the race order. But when they were racing, I mean, he he disobeyed the the, the race order when Vettel was in the in front of him, and he was told to you know stay behind him for a for a couple of laps. And half a lap later, Charles is uh, doing what uh, what he does best and passing him because well, why should I sit behind him for a couple of laps when clearly I'm faster than? Him? But yeah, I mean, at least in my eyes, I I'd give the edge to to, to Charles so far and even though neither of them have uh, won a race. I mean, he's had more noticeable moments that have really stood out for me. I mean, uh, Vettel, I mean, he's he, I mean, he's played it clean, right? I mean, he's he's done what he yeah. could to get the points that he needed. He's conservative this year. Conservative, yes, absolutely. I mean, I, I think it's, what what is that, uh, twice bitten, forever shy? Is that old yeah, saying? Like, you're like, yeah, yeah, okay, I might have cost myself the 2018 Drivers' Championship. How about yeah. I just go 90% all the time instead of 100% or maybe I I just focus a bit more this year. I don't yeah. I don't have that one moment of uh of laps of judgment then I finish with a spin and uh, I hit something and then my race is over. No, 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 no. I think he's going to focus. Yeah. 
Yeah, well, it, it makes me think maybe Sebastian is just being an older driver, you know, having all that experience. Maybe he is thinking long game and also thinking, why should I push at 100%? Because if I'm pushing 100%, I'm still... 90% of what I need to beat the Mercedes cars in front of me, right? So why push the car that extra 10% and and risk something happening when you're not going to improve on, say, a third position or a fourth position, whatever you are at that? I mean, Charles, of course, being probably a, a good part of a decade younger than Sebastian Vettel and obviously has uh, <laughs> many uh, dozens less race wins and, uh, and certainly four world championships less than Sebastian Vettel. He has the aggressiveness and the the impulse of of youth, and I mean, we saw that perfectly in that incident I just referenced in in Bahrain. He saw an opportunity to pass a, a car in front of him. It didn't matter; it was his teammate, who's also the number one driver in his team. And and I think that's the difference uh, between Sebastian and Charles right now. Whether that's going to, you know, how that's going to play out over the course of an entire season in the in the drivers' championship where the two end up by the time we get to Abu Dhabi at the end of November and how it turns out in the, the, the uh, I guess, in the wins column, if you want to call it that, if Ferrari are able to do anything to, to win a race this year, that remains to be seen. But uh, certainly very interesting and very exciting to watch these guys this year. Just to continue on the vein of upgrades or mm-hmm. improvement or fix, Alfa Romeo finally fix their situation with the front wing <laughs> they're introducing a permanent fix for that front wing finally founding the uh the right i would say mix the right combination of aerodynamics and uh reliability and more durability uh, that's the thing with the front wings they're so fragile those uh, 200 pieces Last time I checked, somebody told me on social media, 200 well, it's pieces. It's amount of components, yeah. 200 pieces. And that's without all the pieces that needs to put all the pieces together, if you know what I mean. Like <laughs> the pieces of tape, of glue, of permanent fiberglass molding and resin and all of those beautiful things. 200 components, minimum, for the front wings. So yeah, it's, it's, it's complicated, but they found they found a fix. Yeah, and finally, and, and I mean, Alfa Romeo, I think, is a, an interesting one for me. I mean, obviously, last year's uh, Sauber Alfa Romeo Racing, or whatever the name was uh, previously, they, they made a huge step forward. I mean, they, they, they obviously benefited from uh, more of the Ferrari backing and, and, and the, 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 the proper spec engines going into the, the proper you know, design of the car rather than that hybrid mix that they had the year before with they had a 2016 engine and a car that wasn't designed to have an engine like that uh, integrated into it. But I've, I've seen some sort of flashes, but also at the same time, they've been a little bit underwhelming. So I, I would like to see a, a little bit more from them. I mean, I would regularly expect to see, especially a driver like Kimi Raikkonen, scoring points, being in the top 10, I think obviously to suggest that Alfa Romeo might be pushing for podiums might be a bit of a stretch, but certainly I think that they've got everything yeah. in their means to be a, a regular point scoring team. And and, and I don't see any reason it, with, with the backing and the resources that they have as a team now, why they should not be, say, aiming for best of the rest, maybe fourth or fifth in the uh, in the Constructors' Championship. And Eighth, ninth, yeah. You know, saying you're setting the bar awfully low, but 
for me, seeing what that team has come from is sober. I mean, I think that would be a good accomplishment for them. It's not that you're setting the bar low, is you're being realistic. I think that's what we forget. Yeah. There's only one winner per race. There's only one podium, trade drivers. And look, there's two cars that are way better than everybody else. Then there's two cars that are very that are better than everybody else but one team. And then mm-hmm. there's another car that's better than everybody else but two teams. What I'm saying is Mercedes and then Ferrari and then Red Bull. Yeah. So you can't beat those. Even if you want to have the best car with the best driver in the whole world with $200 million per year for five years straight, you might not beat those those three teams. So so that's not the goal. So you take this into the into consideration, top six is out of the question. So mm-hmm. you got position seven, eight, nine, and ten that are a success if you get there. And with the we've seen already this year with the talent of Kimi Raikkonen, often we've seen Alpha Romeo being eight, nine, ten. Then depending on the, how the race is finishing, sometimes outside of the point, sometimes a bit in. But we've seen it in races: Alpha Romeo ninth, Kimi Raikkonen in qualifying, top ten for uh, Q3 in, in Australia, I believe. So, so no, I think the potential is there. Think reliability and little mistakes. That's the big difference between Ferrari and what Kimi Raikkonen is used to and Alfa Romeo now. And he's already has addressed that in the media over the last four Grand Prix. Mm-hmm. But I think that's what that's going to be the key. They're going to have some moments that teams like Ferrari don't have, but still they do their best. And uh, there's not 200 people working day in, day out on that car, right? Well, there is 200, but not 500. So that's, I guess that's a big difference. But we will see uh, progress. And I think with a reliable driver that you can... You know, one of the things we don't talk often enough is not just the car, but but to be able to truly analyze and understand your car how it how it is you need a driver that's almost clockwork that would always do the exact same thing so you can take the driver out of the equation and truly analyze the car and be Mm -hmm. able to see what where the car is actually works or not and we're not going to get into more details i'm not an engineer but that's one of the key goals of having a kimi raikkonen for the future for development is that you can rely on his work and how he's going to drive the car the same for 28 example straight laps. And then you can extrapolate that and then you can take the actual driving out of the equation and imagine with your equation what a what this setup would do. And so, so it's a lot more, it's a lot easier on the engineers when you have a driver that's reliable like this and a veteran especially. So I think down the road for the next three years, however long, it actually lasts. Kimi Raikkonen still driving for for Alfa Romeo. I think it's going to be beneficial. We see the development of that car skyrocket. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, I mean, you make a great point there. I mean, Kimi Raikkonen, a very talented driver. Obviously, years of experience in motor racing and Formula One, world champion, all those things. And of course, I mean the the amount of feedback that he's going to be giving that to the team and to the engineers and to the designers and to the mechanics and everybody, I mean, is just invaluable because, you know, a couple of years ago, I mean, before, you know, the, the current management team uh, was installed there, I mean, they, they were a team that was really going nowhere fast. I mean, uh, the, under the former uh, team principal, uh, Manisha Kaltenborn, 
they, they, they were kind of just there to, to make up the last couple of cars on the grid. That 2017 car was just an absolute disaster. And I mean, <coughs> excuse me, but you, you had uh, two drivers in uh, Marcus Erickson and Pascal Verlein. I mean, you know, those are the kind of guys you expect in a team driving for, you know, driving for a team like Sauber, right? But then last year, you have a car that's okay, and you have a, one of those guys, you have a Marcus Erickson who's okay, but then you got this hot young guy coming into Formula One and, and really turns heads quickly. And the, the difference that he did in, in, in that car last year, in that Sauber, compared to what Marcus Erickson did, what was night and day. So I think what Charles did for, for Sauber really made them sit up and take no, notice. And then, of course, getting Kimi Raikkonen to go there for two years. <laughs> <coughs> Just yeah. kind of thinks, okay, well, this is the potential we saw with a driver like Charles, but now we're a year further. We have a guy like Kimi Raikkonen. How much further can we go? No, uh, I uh, I totally agree. And before we continue, Mark, I think it's time we take a little bit of a break for our sponsors right here, <laughs> live on Scuderia F1 on the Overtime Media Network. And we're back. On Scuderia F1, the podcast that is always up to speed with Formula One on the Overtime Media Network. I'm Kevin Army, of course, Mark Daly. And Mark, uh, while we look at Spain, we look at the potential of this race. We've talked about the great performance of the Mercs and all and the battles. And you know one battle we didn't talk about? And that's the battle between Williams and relevancy and right now <laughs> they're losing that battle but exciting updates apparently are coming yeah. to williams and uh we'll see russell and kubiksa maybe trying to finally qualify better than 20th and 19th you know i'd like to invite the listeners to if they, they could actually sit in here while we're recording kevin because the way that i've structured the structures the the, the notes here i've kind of I, i've cherry-picked the order a little bit because it's kind of funny because if you look at it, i've got the first title it says williams convinced kubica and russell have quote identical chassis and i'm doing the inverted air commas here the second one russell quote exciting updates can turn williams season around and then the third one Russell and Kubica swap chassis for Spanish Grand Prix. So, so I guess know. they do have identical chassis because they just switched. <laughs> but no, it is interesting to me that Williams is optimistic about an upgrade. At this yeah. point, if I'm Williams, I wouldn't say nothing. I mm. would keep my mouth shut. Just get the updates on the car already and stop being an embarrassment. And, yeah. and no, 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 like, I don't mean to be disrespectful for Williams fan, but when you're more than two to three seconds from the pole position time, every single race and not even getting better. And then one of your drivers is one second slower than your other driver on any given day so far this year. I'm exaggerating a tiny bit. Sometimes it's 0.7 of a second. But yeah. when you round up, guess what? It's a second. So... <laughs> It is a bit, uh, a bit embarrassing so far. The results of Williams in 2019, and the tunnel was dark, and no one was seeing the light at the end of the tunnel. Are these updates the end of the 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 light at the end of that tunnel? Probably not, but at least it's the beginning of a projector <laughs> to put at the end of the tunnel. 
Yeah, well, you know, it, it will be interesting to see how these updates that Williams are going to introduce to the FW42 are actually going to translate to performance on the track. But, I mean, as you say, I mean, if you're two seconds off the pace and all of a sudden you're, you're half a second and three quarters of a second faster per lap, hey, that's awesome. But guess what? At best, you're still a second and a quarter faster, or sorry, slower than the... Uh, <laughs> The fastest cars in front of you. I mean, how much it can pull them into the uh, into the midfield battle, that that's uh, another question. But I mean, th- that's what they really got to start uh, trying to do is catching the teams in front of them. Because uh, I mean, right now, I mean, they're so far behind <coughs> behind the teams uh, yeah. immediately in front of them in the constructor standings that they they just need some sort of forward momentum. I mean, they've become mired in this quicksand and. Like you say, I mean, the, the, the pro- uh, progression has been, <laughs> well, it's been negative. I mean, it, it hasn't been any hasn't forward been progression any. in a very long time. There hasn't been any progression. <laughs> They've regressed. They've regressed all the way back to the end of the grid of Formula One. Not just literally, it's figuratively now, too. And it's a shame because it's been, what, two, three years now? So, Mark, already, yeah, yeah. when you just imagine, when you just think of a back of the grid car you think of williams now and that's that's a big harm on the brand the williams yep. brand has taken a huge hit yeah well i mean this this is a team that has been i mean they're one of the one of the last privateers in formula 1 i mean their accomplishments uh, in in winning drivers and constructors championships i mean they're world renowned. I mean, some of the best drivers in the sport in, in their their forty two year history or whatever it is now have been. I mean, there's been some great drivers that have uh, driven for them. Alan Jones, Keke Rosberg, N- Nelson Piquet, um, Nigel Mansell, Jack Villeneuve, Ayrton Senna, Alan Prost. I mean, keep going and going and going. Even Pastor Maldonado drove for them. I mean, I know it's hard to believe a great driver like him would drive for Williams, but. You know what I'm I'm saying? I am being a little bit facetious, but (laughs) of course, when you look at the Constructors' Championship right now, at the very top, you have uh, Mercedes, who, of course, at the top of the heap, leading the the, the way with 173 points in the Constructors. And after, you know, four races into this thing, we have Williams-Mercedes with zero points. Okay. So we have Toro Rosso and, and Haas Ferrari with four points and eight points, respectively. They've had a bit of a rough start to the season. But at the end of the day, <laughs> you're still the only team that hasn't scored a point in the World Championship this season. And unless things don't in, change drastically, you know, <laughs> there's no hope that you're going to start scoring even a single point here or there anytime soon. Of course, you know, having said that, in, uh, in in just a few short weeks, the Formula One will be heading back to Monaco. And that is the one race out of the year that anybody can show up to the track on race day and say, I've got a legitimate chance of winning this thing because we've seen it before. Heck, we even saw, saw Olivier Panis win the, the uh, Monaco Grand Prix. What it 1996. Was about. I'll Six, always yeah. remember. <laughs> Yeah, so I mean, not not to take anything away from Olivier, but was it ninety six? Now I doubt myself. Ninety nine. Yeah, was, was it? 99? Yeah, I know that it's been quite a while. I don't remember the specific year, but the okay, point yeah. is that the the circumstances and things can happen in Monaco, 
And maybe that's something that Williams can benefit from. I know when you have to sort of factor in chance rather than good design and, 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 and engineering and manufacturing and just having a good car to start with that you got to cross your fingers and hope to get some points at a, what always is a bit of a topsy-turvy lottery kind of race. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And uh, we'll see. We'll see. <laughs> but uh, before we continue, Mark, I just want to make sure that I get the chance to mention it. Earlier this week, it was May 8th. And May 8th will always be known as the unfortunate passing of Gilles Villeneuve. In 1982, in Zoldar, on a Saturday, qualifying a terrible accident, and uh, he passed away. He was age 32 at that time, and now we're in 2019, and it's the uh, 37th, uh, 36th anniversary, 37 years since his passing. And uh, am I right? Uh, yes, I believe so. So, uh, yeah, it's a terrible souvenir, but uh, it's a souvenir nonetheless. Uh, it is one of the great drivers that we never got a chance to see his full potential. Yeah, and, you know, I still remember the, the day that it happened, and I was really, really young at the time, but I specifically remember as a young kid going out with my parents on a Saturday morning, and we'd just been out for breakfast, and I remember getting back into the car, and my dad was a, a big motor racing and Formula One fan from all the way the days back before he moved to Canada from, from England and well, all the motor racing that he used to enjoy over there. And I remember getting into the car, and it came on the radio that it happened, and I just remember my dad being so really instantly upset and devastated at, at hearing the news and... I didn't really, you know, being as young as I was at the time, <coughs> I didn't really appreciate it until much I was much older. And then, of course, I not only had the the sadness that, you know, Gilles passed at uh, such a, a young age, but then also, <coughs> excuse me, uh, a regret that uh, I wasn't old enough to have enjoyed him and and been able to watch him race when uh, when he was around. <coughs> Yeah, no, it's the same for me. I was born in 1984, and uh, I heard my dad talk about him when then uh, when I was a kid watching Jacques Villeneuve, his kid. Uh, my dad was talking to me about Jen, and then I was a bit older, and I got a chance to watch uh, the different races. Of course, the great the great battle with René Arnoux. Of course, that that great uh, video. It's on YouTube and anywhere, and you can watch the type of driving. But I think it's just thirty seventh anniversary of his passing, and uh, it was worth mentioning. Gilles Villeneuve, salut Gilles. Yeah, absolutely, Kevin. I'm glad that uh, that you uh, did mention it. And I was just thinking, too, as you were talking, that um, not only um, it was uh, Gilles uh, you know, famous in Canada in, in motorsport for Formula One, but where I'm sitting right now, I, I live in a suburb of Vancouver called Coquitlam, which is about half an hour from downtown Vancouver. But less than a mile from where I'm sitting is the old Westwood Motorsports Park. And uh, among some uh, you know well-known uh, drivers, including... Uh, Keke Rosberg, Jacques Villeneuve uh, was uh, was uh, was or senior was there, but also Gilles was there. And also, which is interesting, 
is uh, Sir Sterling Moss was the uh, was the 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 track ambassador from where it was, but uh, uh, Westwood Motorsport Park also now a relic of uh, motorsport yeah. history here. Yeah, yeah, no, uh, yeah, exactly. All right, Mark, uh, we've talked about uh, Barcelona, and we're gonna have the qualifying today, and we'll have obviously the race on Sunday, and we'll talk about it more on our next show. But one thing that I thought was quite worrisome and is uh, Chase Carey mentioning that F1 will lose two current races in 2020. Now, I'm a bit reassured because when we say F1 is going to lose a race, I'm always like, ah, no, not Montreal, not again. Please don't pull my Grand Prix again. <laughs> and I think we're safe. There was a... a time being. Yeah, for the time being, there was a meet like an agreement of last year for until 2029. So we should be good for another decade of the Canadian Grand Prix. The paddock will be brand new and built and ready for this year's Grand Prix. Maybe not ready fully for this year, but uh, for sure the next next year it'll be fully ready. This year they'll do their best to accommodate and make it make it okay. Next year should be good. But two Grand Prix, and one of them could be Barcelona, and that's what people were worrying about, Barcelona, and it could be uh, other ones, too. Uh, German Grand Prix was talked about, there could be one, or, yeah, so uh, what do you think? Uh, Two Grand Prix that will be lost from from this year, according to Chase Carey. (coughs) Well, Kevin, you know, it's interesting, I mean, like you say, uh, Monza sounds like they're getting close to renegotiating something. Silverstone is not, you know, no pun intended, set in stone. Obviously, they broke their contract uh, early to exercise that uh, early outs because I think they'd signed a very long-term deal. I don't remember yeah. now off the top of my head how many the, years it was for. But the amount of money was... was 2020s or something, wasn't it? Yeah, and the amount of money was not sustainable for Silverstone because yeah. they, they had they had some hike into the payment too that the payments were even bigger down the the later years of the contract and Silverstone with the revenues and the foreseeable revenues that they're going to make could yeah. not make it work and they want to they're going to belly up basically so yeah. they, well they the deal the, that they have of course was negotiated with Bernie Ecclestone rather than the uh, shrewdest the, deal maker in Britain yeah well I mean that's why Bernie is as successful as he is or and and made Formula One what it is or what it was under him, I mean, was uh, certainly because Bernie had a, a knack for making deals. And on top of that, Bernie knew how to make deals that really made Bernie come out on top. But uh, just going back to uh, that list, Hockenheim, I would not be surprised to see fall off the list again because that one was canceled just in uh, the, the last couple of years. Mexico has lost the, uh, the the state funding that they've had to help fund the um, the, the Grand Prix there. Uh, Barcelona's a bit of a, su- a surprise because obviously it's been on the calendar for a very, very long time. And personally, I hate to see it go because I have sentimental attachment being one of the uh, tracks that I've actually watched a Formula One race at. And um, yeah, I, I mean... I, I could see out of that list, I mean, my top two, if I had to pick uh, two, um, I, I would rank the whole list as Mexico, Hockenheim, Barcelona, and Silverstone, although Barcelona, by all accounts, might be higher up on that list uh, than you think, despite its uh, its long standing on the calendar and also as the, the, the home of, uh, of winter testing, so... 
that would be a surprise. I mean, not only is it a very well-attended Grand Prix, but for people that have been to Barcelona, I mean, it is a, it's a world city. I mean, it's full of culture. It, it's, it's beautiful. I mean, uh, Catalonia is a, is a wonderful part of Spain, and uh, it would be sad to see it go. Yeah, it, it has a history yep. in Formula One, too. When you think about modern Formula One, Barcelona is is a must in yep. I think in the calendar. And that's where but that's where it gets tricky though. Because yep. you want new races and if you're Chase Carey and you wanna expand uh, and you know, a new ownership group and you wanna have your Grand Prix too. The, you're the Grand Prix that you bring to the circus, right? You you want little your little baby. There's a little bit of that. There's only so many Grand Prix, so even if if you want new ones, old ones gotta go, and eventually, no no Grand Prix is safe. But uh, th- there's a possibility the Shanghai Grand Prix could be different. It's like mm-hmm. there's a lot of things that people talked about, and uh, former must not necessarily are must forever. The Malaysian Grand Prix was a must for a long time. It was Sepang, I remember, late '90s, early 2000s when it first started. It was like the new shiny toy, but eventually yeah. the toy wears off, and eventually he's not new and shiny. The shine wore off, and you don't play with it, and eventually you just move on to another toy. So eventually all Grand Prix will change, but Monaco is never going to change, and maybe that's the only one who's set in stone. Yeah, I mean, if there's any Grand Prix out there that's pretty much a, a lock year in, year out, I mean... I, I could not see a, a situation where they would not go and race there. I mean, being literally their their own backyard. But I've got some thoughts on this, Kevin, and we'll do so after we take this very short break here, our final break of the show here on the Overtime Media Network. Don't go away. We shall be right back. All right, Kevin. Well, yeah, just to, to finish up that previous segment where we are just talking about uh, potentially losing some races and bringing some new races in, so they're still saying, or Chase Cario, Cary, the CEO of Liberty Media, is uh, saying he expects the calendar to remain stable at 21 races. So even if two of the current races are going to be lost, then that's going to be uh, one of them will be uh, for certain replaced by the Vietnamese Grand Prix, which will be hosted uh, for the very first time in uh, in Hanoi next year in 2020, and they have a deal with a Sunfort for a Dutch Grand Prix uh, sometime in May. It's 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 agreed, but they haven't dotted all the I's, crossed all the T's, and nobody signed off on it. So it sounds like it's going to happen, but it's not a, a lock yet. So yeah. it, it is interesting, though, because, as, as you, like you say, I mean, Formula One evolves. It changes. Everything changes. The drivers, the cars, the technology, and even the even the circuits. But it is interesting to me, though, when you see like some of these races kind of fall off, and these these other ones coming in, like uh, Vietnam, and then previously, say like a, a track like uh, in Azerbaijan, the uh, at Baku City, that you know Liberty is going out there, and the, he even said Chase Carey said about a, a year ago. Did they not have, or what he was hinting at, up to 40 interested venues that wanted to uh, hold a Formula One 
uh, Grand Prix. So I don't know how much of that is accurate. Obviously, we're, we're not privy to uh, to Chase Carey's meetings or the conversations he's having with people. I, I don't know how much, uh, I mean, to, to suggest, uh, you know, how much, how accurate that number would be, would be complete uh, speculation on our behalf. But that has been one question that, that I've had. I mean, obviously they have a very different way of uh, running Formula One than Bernie Ecclestone was. And Bernie's model always was exactly like you said with Silverstone, even though they, they had like this very long term contract for 10 years or whatever it was. Like you say, just the fees to host it would increase each and every year when they got into further into that deal to the point that even if they went through all the way and they didn't exercise that early out clause, that even this far into the deal, even what was it last year when, when they decided to exercise that uh, that early out uh, option or clause that they were just saying even now that it's just not sustainable. And, 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 and the British Grand Prix, I mean, is one of the more successful uh, events on the calendar. I mean, it's always packed. Obviously, it, it helps that, you know, Lewis Hamilton is is British hometown boy. So, I mean, you know the the British love motor racing, obviously, and they love Lewis Hamilton. So, you know that's going to be very well attended, and it all, and it has been for a very very long time. So, that's kind of shocked me that they were saying that they just it wasn't sustainable under that model. And the conversation to renew it has been glacial. It, it really hasn't progressed very far. I mean, there's some encouraging nuggets that come out in the news here and there, but. They seem to be far and few between, but Bernie's approach to anything was in Formula One. I'm going to do it my way, and if and if you can meet the costs and, and be here, great. But you know what? If you can't afford it, get out. You don't deserve to be here, kind of thing. Whereas Liberty seems to be a little bit more flexible in in the way that they approach things. I mean, they said as very much as they'd like to see new venues, new races like Vietnam, for example, and they've talked about having a, a second U.S. Grand Prix. I mean. Miami looked like it was going to be a, a sure thing until, you know, the whole just the civic situation in the, in Miami really brought that to a, a grinding halt. So, however, uh, they, as, as eager as they are to get these new races, you know, they say that we recognize the historical value of the traditional races in, in Formula One, like your German Grand Prix, your Italian Grand Prix, your Spa-Francorchamps for the Belgian Grand Prix. And we saw the return to uh, to France last year for a French Grand Prix, which is the first time since what was it, 2008? Which you know, when you think about it, I mean, uh, Formula One without a French Grand Prix is almost to me as uh, unimaginable as uh, without having a, a German Grand Prix or a British Grand Prix or an Italian Grand Prix. So they, they they have done things in different ways. So. It will be interesting to see how the calendar looks, not only next year, but in the years to come. So it'll be certainly uh, quite a process to see who sticks around, who doesn't, and, and who comes into the fold. Well, it's, it's interesting, too. And I think in the same vein, it might be a good way to finish the show, Mark, too, is uh, if you look at uh, uh, what Sergio Perez was mentioning and how yeah. uh, frustrating uh, F1 needs to change massively in a quote for me of course it, it does have to change in the fact that it does need to be more sustainable because yeah. uh, let's not forget it everything is a, it cycles right there's going to be a big a big peak of popularity and then eventually it goes a big down and eventually it's going to go a big up but it settles at some point either high and that's where it's great where 
you settle and you're at the height of your popularity and you settle there and you stay there for five to ten years, it's great. And then popularity is going to die down a bit and then it settles in the middle. And then depending on what you do, it can either go down or go back up. Where is Formula One now? Is it at its peak of its popularity? I don't think so. I don't think in this media world, in this landscape, in the size and the quickness of the just the conversation, the public conversation, how quickly it just evolves. Mm-hmm. I think it's in the middle, somewhere in the middle, a little higher than the middle, maybe three quarters of the way to the height of its popularity and, and it's plateaued there. And if you are Liberty Media, <coughs> you see this popularity going down because since the turbo hybrid era, your races, let's face it. <clears throat> okay. Well, that's going to be a big, big thing I'm going to say here. We all love Formula One. But are the races really what we like about Formula One anymore? As motorsport, is Formula One the most entertaining races in the world right now? No. And mm-hmm. quite far from it. And I think down the road, if this doesn't become a bit part of the concern... Well, the popularity of the sport will go continue to go down and reach a smaller, lower plateaus and not go back to the height of its popularities that you would say would be early 2000s to mid 2000s. So for me, that's a big thing is the races need to be in in the motorsport world, Formula One. Like the real motors, like the real crazy car guys that we all know, Mark. Example, the crazy um, NASCAR car drive, crazy drivers fan, or the guys that actually drive and they they aspire to become drivers. Or we're talking about just enthusiast enthusiasts that like to watch things. F one is not the most watched one. There's more casual Formula One. Then there's casual diehard IndyCar fans. Of course, because there's only diehard left. Everybody else left for the IndyCar, and you might be right. But what I mean is the most interesting and fascinating races are not Formula One. And that could be one of the reasons that the popularity of the sports either gets better or gets worse. But I think that's one of the things that needs to change. And that's one of the things that Sergio Perez was alluding when he talks about a massive change too is is just how the races are made to 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 be and what's the goal of this thing just mm-hmm. one winner just no you, you want to put on a show you want to have cars that are closer to each other you want to so so yeah i think it's a bit of everything i just said well you know i mean the classic word that gets thrown around in uh, in in north american sports and i mean we we cover salary cap leagues kevin so uh, away from from formula 1 and i mean the the word that always comes up in a league that has a salary cap is parity right that's uh, that there's more competition and the, the the teams that have less are in a position to compete with the big boys right and you know, there's arguments to be made, you know, how well that works in Major League Baseball or the NFL, the NBA, the NHL, whatever it might be, right? Well, and, oh, Mark, I'm sorry so to interrupt, but what you just said, it just made me realize something. Without parity, you cannot, you cannot appreciate dominance. 
Okay. That's true. Okay. Yeah. So, so example, I'm going to put something in perspective. Okay. Uh, there's a, imagine like we just had a, a sports team winning four straight game in this. Okay. In a season that has 17. Like it was nothing. Total domination. If this was the case in a place where the same team rarely wins, this would be momentous. It would catch headline. Look at that performance. They're going to win. They're winning great. They're dominant. When Tiger Woods came on, it raised golf everywhere. But at the end, people get tired of Tiger Woods when he wins too much. So it's a cycle. And right now, because we've seen the same, I guess, trope, of one team dominating Formula One in the last five to six years, and then a new team comes around and does the exact same thing, it it, lo- it loses a bit of its flavor, and we don't appreciate the the beauty of having uh, someone that's really good at what they do. And I think that's a shame. Remember at the beginning of Tiger Woods? Tiger Woods was raising everything about golf, and Lewis Hamilton should do that right now. He should be at that level of popularity. He should be considered one of the best athletes in this sport. Is he top 20, 30 right now in the conversation when you talk about LeBron James? And so, so yeah. You know, just uh, <laughs> what you're talking about, uh, Tiger Woods, uh, uh, <laughs> that, that, that uh, classic quote from uh, The Dark Knight popped into my head is what you either die a hero or live long enough to see yourself become the villain. So I think that maybe That's there's a, a legitimate shout to be made uh, about Tiger on that one. But, you know, it, it's a good point uh, that, that, that you make. And and I keep going back every time I, I hear, you know, regardless if it's uh, guys like Sergio Perez or if it's just uh, me and you talking about it on the show or you know, talking or read about it, whatever it might be, is that when it when it comes down to making changes in Formula One, I mean, how long have they been discussing now what they want to look or Formula One to look like in, in 2020 and sorry, in 2021. And it sounds now that they're working towards what might be a compromise that everybody will sign off on uh, later in this year. But the, the, the thing is with Paul Air Formula One is we all know it's politics. There's lots of vested interests and, you know, it's structured in a way that for for those that are at the top is like, why should we change to accommodate the, these guys? You know, if they're not good enough to be here or don't have the money to be here, then why are they here? So, I, I mean, I, I kind of try and understand the perspectives from different, you know, different angles as much as I can kind of obviously understand it from, say, someone that's coming from a Ferrari point of view or a driver's point of view or from a fan's point of view like ourselves, right? But then again, I'm very interested to see how somebody like Liberty Media is trying to do, and they've obviously bought this as a commodity, right? And they they see something they believe has a lot of potential that has a a lot that they can do with it and and really market it and, and really build upon what uh, what Bernie Ecclestone did with it. And I mean, he did a phenomenal job for what he did. And I mean, he did what he was prepared to do and it worked in the way that, uh, that he was satisfied. And at the end of the day, he was making a lot of money. So, I mean, he didn't really have a lot of motivation to really do more than what, what, what he was prepared to do at the time. And I mean, hey, fair game to him. That's what, what he wanted. But Liberty Media has ob- obviously come in with big ideas. I mean, they put their money where their mouth is. I mean, they paid a lot of money to become the rights holder and and the people that are running the show. But at the end of the day, if they can't get all these different stakeholders and, and, and all the teams to agree on it, then 
you know, what will actually change? Well, we have like a sort of a, you know, this grand vision for the future, which they've uh, unveiled in the past. And are we going to get like a a watered down version of that, that everybody begrudgingly accepts and decides to sign up to that maybe had great intentions when it was first uh, put forward and presented, but when it was implemented was not really what it was intended to be and doesn't really have the impact or the changes that everybody hoped for. I mean, you know, to, not to drag on too long, I mean, we can just maybe talk about a sort of segue into the, the, the 2019 changes that we've seen. I mean, it's had some impacts, obviously, the, with the, you know, the, the changes to the wings and the, the barge boards and the brake ducts and all that. And we, we've seen some closer racing, but I mean, it hasn't really made for, you know, bumper to bumper action, if you want to call it that, and overtaking on each no, and every corner. So Not you know. enough that, because basically it's not just that. I think you have to take out the disparity between the power, the, the, the cars. It's basically, you have to make the cars like closer together in performance, not just in the fact that they can actually drive physically closer to each other without affecting performance. You want the car, you want the drivers to battle each other. You don't want the cars to battle each other. I think there's, that's the nuance. And I think that's the difference, right? You want to you wanna associate the driver. It's not about the car. It would never about the car. And if you want to make Formula One the greatest sport, the greatest motorsport league in the world, again, or the most interesting one, and it's about the drivers. It's never <laughs> about the car. It's about yeah. the superstars yeah. that the driver can be. Yeah, it's balanced, Mark, once, but it's more... If you have a driver that has to win, that okay, to become a superstar, you need to win. First of all, yes. <laughs> but if you win because you're in a car that's way better than everyone and you just... First time you step on the car, you fake, fake a lap, and you're number one, you get the best lap, and you start the race first, and the start of the race, you start, and you make all 72 laps in position number one, and you're never tested, that ain't good. But if you start seventh each race, and you make seventh over six overtake, and you win every single race, guess what? You'll be a superstar. At the end, it's the same results of you winning all the races. But the journey's been compelling. People saw an arc in your story of a of a protagonist in that story. And they can associate with you. They relate with you. And I think that's the big difference. And I think that's what you need to see more. It's the drivers. Make a yeah. story about the drivers. And make sure that the performance of the cars represent the drivers. And eventually you have more superstars and you get everything. Yeah, so that's why it's going to, I I totally agree. And I think that's why it'll be fascinating to watch and see where they take it uh, over the next several months before, I mean, they got to get this thing done because time is running out under the current Concord agreement and they need something. I just hope that uh, what we get is uh, something uh, worthwhile. But Kevin, my voice is starting to fade, so let's let's start wrapping it up and I agree. let's do so and just remind, just give everybody a, a quick refresher on the, uh, the the Spanish Grand Prix. So we're looking at a 66 lap race on Sunday. Circuit length is just over 4.65 kilometers. A race distance is just a hair over 307.1 kilometers. Danny Ricardo set the lap record last year, setting a time of 118. 
four four one. So the tires available will be the hard C ones, the medium C twos, and the soft C threes. And again, in the drivers championship, again this is um, no surprise. We have some guys in, like you said, the silver and chrome and green colored Mercedes. And uh, I would expect, unless something drastic happens, it will still be either Valtteri Bottas or Lewis Hamilton leading the world championship on Monday morning. Valtteri is currently in first place with 87 points. Lewis in second with 86. Sebastian Vettel third in the world championship with 52. Followed by Max Verstappen, Charles Leclerc, Sergio Perez, Pierre Gasly, Kimi Raikkonen, Lando Norris, and K-Mag, Kevin Magnussen, to round out the top 10. So, well, by the time this goes to air, it'll be almost time for pre-free practice because as I see my clock here on my laptop, it is only four hours and 15 minutes until FP3. And then shortly thereafter, it'll be qualifying. And um, I'm always looking forward to, to that and also to the race. And I think that's a perfect place to leave it off. And this was Scuderia F1 podcast here on the Overtime Media Network. My name is Mark Daly, and on behalf of my co-host, Kevin Laramie, thank you very much for listening. Enjoy the Spanish Grand Prix, and until we talk again next, have a great Formula One. Thanks for listening to the Scuderia F1 podcast. If you want to get the show notes for this episode, then head over to ScuderiaF1Pod.com. Want to get in touch with us? Then email us at ScuderiaF1Pod at gmail.com.